Hello, and welcome to Never a Dull Moment, a talk show and podcast for angels and founders. Ziad of Boston Harbor Angels, his co-hosts, and his guests have fun discussing and debating all topics from the world of startups and entrepreneurship. Enjoy. Amazon, they sent me this cat-butt tissue holder. But when it comes to data, their technology is older. Wasabi's great at one thing, their cloud's the best, I swear. Amazon's great if you want Alpaca underwear. Morning, David. <laughs> Good morning. Full disclosure to our listeners, Boston Harbor Angels is a fan, supporter, and investor in Wasabi. Welcome. So excited to have you. Last get-together before the year end, and you guys were the highlight of the year. You were achieved unicorn level in 2022, so what a pleasure. Let me start by asking you some questions about things outside Wasabi. You're a repeat entrepreneur. There's so many questions, so many things to discuss. But let's start. If you can tell us a little bit about your passion for minerals. It's outside technology, outside. And entrepreneurs, there's so much more to their interests, their passions. So that would be great to hear a little bit about your your passion for collecting minerals. Well, you can see, you know, I'm sort of surrounded by minerals here in my office. And what you can see is only about 20% of what's in the room here. (laughs) I started collecting minerals when I was just a little kid. Uh, They were building Route 95 down through Westchester, where I lived. And uh, every day they'd be doing blasting. And I used to cut through the construction site. I'd crawl under the fence and cut through the construction site on my way home from elementary school. I think I was in probably in sixth grade. And uh, I started looking carefully at the rocks that they had just blasted. And and I started finding these little pockets of quartz crystals. They were tiny, you know, very little. But to me, they were like, holy mackerel, look at these little sort of diamonds in inside the rock. And uh, a neighbor was a professor of mineralogy at NYU, and I showed him some of these little crystals that I had sort of whacked out of the rock with another rock, and and uh, he decided to take me under his wing and gave me a rock hammer, and and both of us snuck into the construction site one Saturday, and he showed me how to properly chip out these quartz specimens, and and uh, one thing led to another, and and <laughs> now I've got all of these minerals plus the David Friend Hall of Gems and Minerals at the Yale University Peabody Museum, which contains specimens that are way too big for my house. And uh, so, do you collect uh, them during your travels for years? You just are at the lookout for new items, new specimens, and you just buy it, collect it, get it, and it's just a, a passion, right? I mean, what is the- now? Yeah, and in fact. Uh, in another week or so, I'm heading off to uh, Tucson, Arizona, where there's uh, an annual gem and mineral show that miners, middlemen, and collectors and dealers from all over the world come together. And there's probably about 80,000 people attend this show. 
and uh, all the motels and so forth are taken over by dealers and people set up tents and parking lots. And, <laughs> That's excellent. You know, you can go there and there'll be some guy from Afghanistan with, uh, you know, aquamarines laid out or something like that. And it's it's pretty intense. <laughs> so is there a name? It's not gemology, right? Is there a name for experts? Well, gemology in... is, is a subset of mineralogy. Mineralogy. Uh, gemology okay. is just those about those stones that are actually used in, you know, in jewelry. And so, you know, we'd be classified as gems. And I have... I have a lot of those in my collection. I don't collect cut stones, but I collect them the way they come out of the ground. Uh, but then there are also a lot of beautiful minerals that aren't used in jewelry because they're either, well, they contain lead or something like that, or they are just too soft to be used in jewelry. So how many minerals exist in nature? Oof, it's tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Uh, okay. yeah, yeah. A lot of them are very rare trace minerals that you know have only been found in one place and uh you know very odd chemical compositions um, and sometimes minerals can be have their own species just because of a different crystal structure uh you know for instance pyrite can come in cubes can come in dodecahedrons can form all kinds of different crystal forms uh that's so, so anyway, it's a lot of fun, and, and I, I just never cease to wonder at the <laughs> beauty of these things that just come out of the ground naturally. It's it's truly amazing. And when I do travel, if, if I can, I like to go to mines and things like that and see where they're digging these things out. Sometimes it's pretty dangerous. Uh, you know, OSHA has a, has a, a real valid reason for existing. That's discovered. <laughs> <laughs> But but you see the traits of a true entrepreneur in the in even in your collecting is basically persistence. Keep doing it for a long period of time, get better, uh, um, uh, develop a community. So is this how you started your career in entrepreneurship as well by sheer luck, or did you know you wanted to be a founder, an entrepreneur, a CEO? Uh, you, you know, I. I I think it was more like I didn't want to work for somebody else. When I was in in grad school at Princeton, um, I had a uh, a fellowship there that was sponsored by RCA, and uh, I worked for RCA uh, after uh, after school. And uh, I didn't last more than about six months because it just the predictability of it just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. You know they. Uh, I like to tell the story of, of how the HR person called me into his office after I'd been there about six months. And uh, he had this chart that showed three lines going up like this, a high one, a medium one, and a low one. And uh, I was afraid he was going to fire me, but he said, no, no, look, there's, you know, you've been singled out to be on this A curve. And this A curve means that if you stay here for 10 years, you're going to be making a lot of money. And uh, I, I actually quit the next day <laughs> and uh, moved up to Boston to, to start my own business, uh, the synthesizer company called ARP that was being formed up here and a guy who had some money and some vision. And so I co-founded that company and it turned out to be a great success. But I just, you know, it's always been... Uh, 
you know, people, it's just like a lot of entrepreneurs, people have always told me that, you know, I can't do this and I can't do that and that won't work. And there's no market for this and there's no market for that. And, and, you know, to me, it's always just been a matter of kind of proving everybody wrong. And uh, in the case of Wasabi, for example, uh, you know, most of my VC friends said, you can't compete with Amazon, Google and Microsoft. That's impossible. And I've been hearing that ever since I started in the software business 40 years ago. Oh, Microsoft's just going to include that in Windows and give it away for free. Or, you know, I mean, it just there, there's always reasons why things aren't going to work. And I and I think entrepreneurs just see the world a little differently, you know, and that's that's a characteristic I, I see of most of my fellow entrepreneurs, which is they, they don't care about the doubters. You know, they listen, they think about it, but then they, they have to draw their own conclusions and they don't like somebody telling them this can't be done or that can't be done. And that's probably why I was such a disciplinary problem as a kid as well. <laughs> My poor parents, you know, I, I have sympathy for them now, having my own four kids. <laughs> so are you saying that entrepreneurs is are being an entrepreneur is a character trait, not really something that you can learn? You have to have that extra level of adventure seeking. If someone tells you it cannot be done, that fuels you instead of depletes you? You know, there's a difference between running a company and starting a company, and I'm I'm certainly good at starting them, and I'm okay at running them up to a point. And and uh, you know, the the starting of a company, you're you're really, you know, I studied music composition as an undergraduate, and uh, I realized I was never going to make a living doing that. But being an entrepreneur is kind of the same experience because you're starting with a blank sheet of paper. And there's nothing. It's literally you and maybe your co-founder sitting across the kitchen table. And you have this idea. And, you know, so you sort of start to fill in the notes, so to speak. And after a while, you have a composition. And that's, a you know, a lot of people don't like to function like that. They don't like the ambiguity. They don't like the uncertainty. Uh, you know, they like to see something that's more of a process. And being an entrepreneur is it's not a process that you can really teach i know you can you can teach people about you know accounting you can teach people about engineering you can teach people about management but you know people who sit down and say you know i have i have an idea that if i do xyz you know there are people out there who would like to own it and would like to buy it and i think that's that's something that you either either comes naturally to you or it doesn't. And you you also you need to be persistent, right? There are difficult times, there are difficult days. Do you ever doubt yourself? Meaning, is this going to work? Should I stop or you just keep going? Um, what type of entrepreneur are you? <laughs> That's a, we we have had all had bad days. Everybody <laughs> who's an entrepreneur has had bad days, <laughs> and you know, and we've all had have sort of near death experiences in, in our businesses. Um, it's happened to me numerous times throughout my career, and I I try to explain to people that you know a startup is never a sort of a monotonic upward going line. You know, you, it's sort of two steps forward, one step backward. And, uh, 
So yeah, it's it's scary. And I guess the as I've progressed in my career, um I've realized to take more of an engineering point of view toward these things, that they are simply problems that need to be solved. And uh, you know, it's it, it's not a good idea to get emotional about it. You need to just sit down and think it through. And uh, you know, and, and for that reason, you know, good entrepreneurs know when to pull in their pull in their uh, reins a little bit and slow down. And, and then there's times when you should step on the gas and speed up. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, entrepreneurs fail because they, they don't react, you know, they just simply say, okay, I have this idea and I'm just going to go at it in this way. And, and they don't measure what's going on. They don't observe what, how, how other people see them and other people see their companies. And, and so, you know, you know, they make the mistake of just plowing ahead when every startup has to zig and zag, you know, I've, I've never through, uh, this is my sixth company. And even though Wasabi is doing essentially what I had in my original business plan, we're selling 60% or more of our product through channels today. And there was nothing about channels in my original business plan. That's just, it's something which just, you know, we discovered along the way that this was a better way to run the business. But if I had said, no, we're going to, you know, allow people to go to our website, put in their credit card and buy cloud storage, and that's the way the business model was going to be, I think we would be much less successful company today if, if that's what we had done. So you're saying that an entrepreneur or founder has to be humble in a way. You just said that you need to step aside when the business grows enough. So you hire people who can run huge businesses. You can, you have to adjust and listen to the market, your customers. So, so humility, is that a big trait in your view? Well, I, I personally believe that you, 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 in humility, and I think you gain nothing by being arrogant. Um, you know, all you do is make people either jealous, envious, or, or, you know, dislike you. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs are arrogant. Um, you know, they, they haven't been through a situation where the world turns against them and then they discover they don't have any friends or supporters. Um, so for me, it works. That's just, you know, my nature is to, I always like to describe my management style as an upside down pyramid with me at the bottom rather than at the top. And my job is to enable all the people who actually do the work, which are the ones on the big top flat side of the pyramid. And that's where the real work gets done. The salespeople, the programmers, you know, and so forth. And my job is to create an environment in which all of those people can flourish. And that means a nice place to work. It means a clear vision. It means uh, adequate funding and so forth. So, you know, I try to focus on those things, <clears throat> which will allow the real work to get done in the company. So do you ever stop? Does an entrepreneur ever stop innovating, creating, uh, embarking on a new adventure? All I hear, especially successful people like you, they say, okay, this one is my last business. And then the business, I don't know, goes public or something happens that's, that's, that's exciting for everybody. And then 
a year later they come back and say, "Well, I'm starting this new one right now." So, <laughs> do, do you does does an entrepreneur ever stop, or it's just part of their 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 nature? Well, some do, you know, uh, and uh, some do and some don't. Um, you know, I'm probably one of the oldest tech CEOs in the in the country right now. And I, I love what I do. You know, I mean, it's just to me, I get up every day and and I think about all the interesting things I'm going to be able to learn from the people I work with, from my customers, from, you know, just being part of, of the, the action, so to speak, part of the world. Um, but I have plenty of friends who started companies, made a bundle and haven't done anything except play golf or, you know, buy a yacht or. So I, I I can't speak for everybody else, but uh, I genuinely enjoy what I do. I genuinely enjoy having an opportunity to work with people like you and and some of the Boston Harbor Angels folks, and uh, you know just be uh, constantly stimulated every day. It's just, and and I feel like if I stopped, I would just atrophy. You know that <laughs> you know I don't know what I would do. My you know I did try actually. Uh, taking some time off about 10 or 15 years ago <laughs> and it didn't work out real well. And my wife was like, David, you need to go to another startup. <laughs> you were driving me crazy. You know, get out. <laughs> oh, that's so, that's so great. And, and it's, but you still show that you understand the pieces of the puzzle. I mean, before we talk specifically about Wasabi, but there are, stakeholders, the investors, the employees, the market, the customers. So you're surrounded by all these pieces, like a cook with ingredients. And it takes some time to understand how to deal with each one. Uh, because the way you talk to engineers is different than the way you talk to investors. It's different the way. So have you learned this over the years or it just comes naturally that you do, let's call it code switching. You're, you talk to different people. You, you have this sense of, I mean, when we see you, when we talk to you, we feel you understand us as investors. And I'm sure engineers are the same and salespeople are the same. Yeah, you know, I think I, I I think I said at one of the BHA uh, meetings that you invited me to that you know that my job is is to sell everybody on how this whole thing is going to come together. So you need the technology, you need the business model, you need the sales, you need the investors, and you have to put yourself in everybody else's shoes. You know, uh, I'm an investor. I've been an engineer. I've been a salesperson. So, you know, I, I, I think I understand how people think. And when you're starting a startup, you have to sell investors on your vision. You know, you have to sell them out there on the idea that they should take their hard-earned money and, and entrust you with their hard-earned money. You have to sell engineers on the idea that they should leave their cushy jobs at wherever they're working and come to work for, a you know, a company that may may not survive you have to sell uh you know salespeople on the idea that you know that <laughs> they can take a step backward today but maybe they'll make a lot more money in the future and have all kinds of advancement plans uh, advancement opportunities so yeah it's it's putting all these pieces together and and you have to bring it all together at the same time and, and partly it's it's very tricky because you know if you 
if you go out to an investor without a management team in place, they're going to say, well, come back when you've got a management team in place. If you go out to recruit uh, a management team, they're going to say, I'll come to work with you once you get your funding. And both of them are going to say, where's your product? <laughs> and and so you have to make it, 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 it's sort of amazing how it will all come together at the beginning, but you have to sell each one on the idea that the other is already if it in essence committed you get the engineer to say if you get funding i'll come to work for you you get the salesperson to say if you get funding i'll go to work for you You go to the funding and you say if you put your money in these people are already committed to to join and so you have to construct this thing as if it actually existed when it doesn't and so you you have to have a very clear picture in your own mind of how all these pieces are going to fit together. And then you have to bring it all together in one bang, you know, that makes sense. How it gets yeah. launched. And what is, what about a co-founder? Do you like having a co-founder? Is it important to have a co-founder? Sometimes leaders cannot deal with a co-founder. They're, they're, um, they're lone, lone soldiers. It just, uh, what's your position on a, on a co-founder? Well, you know, I was very fortunate to meet my co-founder, Jeff Flowers, back in the 1980s. And Jeff is a technical genius and can actually see how to get things done that uh, that's beyond uh, my abilities. And uh, and conversely, you know, I, I think I bring a whole bunch of skills to the table that Jeff doesn't have. And even though you may have the world's brightest engineer with the greatest ability to create a fantastic product, that's not going to make a company. And so, you know, he and I work very closely together. Um, we get along really well. I figure I'm extremely fortunate because a lot of people who have co-founders ultimately end up fighting with their co-founders or disagreeing over something. But we have never done that. And I feel, you know, very fortunate that Jeff and I have, that we met and we've been able to have this great relationship. And when we start a company like Wasabi, we just, cut it 50-50, he gets 50, I get 50, and we don't argue over whose contribution is greater. You know, it's just, <laughs> I, I I have always believed it's much better to have a small slice of a big pie than a, a big piece of a small pie. And so, uh, you know, I have, I, I don't guard every last percent of equity you know personally it i don't i don't need it and and i feel that you know that attitude where people say i don't want to give up any equity is a real inhibitor to growth that's that's right that's right and um so i've interacted with a few people at wasabi you seem to have the ability to attract let's call them nice people i mean every time everyone i interacted with are just good people. So do you interview everybody? Do you, or interview the top team? And then that culture permeates through the whole business. How do you have such nice people around you? Um, yeah, I do. I, I certainly interview all the people that I would have direct contact with. So I'd interview certainly the top tier of management and I probably would interview, uh, You know, anybody that I think is going to be a prominent individual contributor, like a, a scientist or something of that nature. Um, and it's, you know, at this point in my career, Ziad, you know, I, 
I, I, I want to be able to go to work and feel good about it, you know, and I want to enjoy myself. I don't need to be, you know, it's not like I need more money at this stage in the game. So I'm not going to put up with an unpleasant work environment. And I have made some mistakes in hiring, but I, I try to fix them. And, you know, bad behavior in a company, people who are arrogant or abusive or just jerks, it just, I just don't have time for it anymore. You know, I, I just, I don't care what their, how smart they are or what their level of contribution is. I, me personally, I don't want to come to work and have to deal with people like that. So, you know, if it turns out, that that's the way somebody emerges after some period of time, you know, we have to part ways because that's not the culture I want to have in the company. I want people to feel good about coming to work and, uh, you know, and feel good about their colleagues. And not just you, everybody, right? Uh, If everybody comes to work happy, they're more productive, a better work environment, better culture. I mean, it's a, it's a virtuous circle. Um, So you've changed for a lot of us, our experiences going to a sushi restaurant because we go, we, <laughs> it used to be wasabi is wasabi. Now wasabi is something else. So let's talk about wasabi specifically now, because this year you became a unicorn. For those who don't know, unicorn means uh, valued at a $1 billion plus. And you've taken on this challenge of competing with the big boys. So, Let's talk about the market. The cl- so you are, simply put, a cloud storage solution, right? And and you're, you tell us a little bit about the cloud storage market first, and then we'll discuss the role of Wasabi in it because it's it's a fascinating market that's evolving into this this huge place that encompasses all the data in the world, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm inspired by a local company called uh, EMC that is now part of Dell. And EMC became one of the largest storage companies in the world 25, 30 years ago by competing with IBM. IBM at that time made everything from soup to nuts. They're kind of like the, you know, when I was in college, every piece of gear in the the, uh, Yale Computing Center had an IBM logo on it. Um, and EMC came along and said, no, you know, people, storage is storage. And if we come out with a storage system that's less expensive than IBM's but works the same, people will, why won't they buy it? And uh, people probably thought they were crazy at the time. I remember I bought stock in EMC when they went public. Um, and, you know, people thought, how can you compete with IBM? You know, that's ridiculous. They have 91% of the market share. And uh, so, you know, when the cloud, when storage started to move to the cloud, I looked at that. I looked back at that and and my, you know, admiration for that company. And I said, well, why won't the same thing happen with the cloud? You know, we've got Amazon. That's the modern day equivalent of IBM. They're kind of the soup to nuts, you know, supermarket of cloud services. They had over 300 different cloud services. Uh, by focusing on just doing one of them really well, you know, we should be able to prosper. And all the world's data is moving from all those old EMC systems on-prem storage to the cloud. You know, I think if you look back 10 years, there was no really 
cloud storage market. If you look forward 10 years, I think everybody believes that most of the world's data is going to reside in the cloud. And that's a huge, you know, trillion dollar kind of market shift. And, uh, you know, we thought, okay, if we can raise enough money and focus on doing this one thing really, really well, we can do it better than Amazon. We can do it better than Microsoft. We can do it better than Google. And we can have a business model that focuses on that on on that one thing. You know, we don't have to have a complicated business model that is, uh, you know, dependent on hundreds of, of other products. And it seems to be working, you know, and we store whatever, right? We uh, My MRI from Mass General probably stored in Wasabi. Images of a night sky from the web telescope, you know, those could be stored in Wasabi. Uh, police body cam data from Dallas is stored in Wasabi. Uh, you know, the backups of the library at Yale are stored in Wasabi. Um, Jurassic Park is stored in Wasabi. <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it doesn't matter what it is. That's the, the nature of object storage is these are blobs, right? They can be anything. It can be somebody's backup, could be an MRI, could be a, a video, could be a movie. Um, it all needs to be stored somewhere. And but you stayed in your own lane, which is so impressive. Like you did not try to do more, be something else. You stayed focused on that simple solution. Were you ever tempted to do other things? I, I keep looking at other things. And I keep coming back to, uh, you know, why do I need to do that? Because the cloud storage market is almost infinite. It's not like I'm running out of, you know, total addressable market or I'm running up against some competitor that's blocking my way. Um, I, I'm not saying we won't do other things in the future if we find things that help, you know, uh, sell cloud storage. Uh, but you know we're in we're in such a large market that i i can't imagine outgrowing it anytime soon and how is how big is the market i mean you said trillion dollar like do you guys analyze the size of the market every once in a while to see uh um or you don't even worry about it it's too big well we don't worry about it but you know i mean amazon alone will do according to idc more than 30 billion just in storage uh this 2022 so you know that's just amazon and uh, then there's google and microsoft and ibm and and oracle and alibaba and tencent so just the part that's in the cloud is already you know probably north of 100 billion and um the part that isn't in the cloud is still 95% of the world's storage. <laughs> so, and the amount of data that's being generated every year keeps growing by, you know, some estimates, 20 to 30%. So, you know, you've got this rising tide lifting all the boats. Um, but th so every person, every business 
increases their own data. So your customers are growing by themselves year after year without you upselling them, right? So I take more pictures, and which means my data is go- is growing by the sheer nature of living these days. Yeah, in addition to which, every time you buy a new phone, it's probably got more megapixels than the one before. <laughs> so each picture takes up more space. <laughs> so, you know, and that's true in surveillance. You know, we, we do a lot of work in surveillance and surveillance cameras are, are now all at least 4K video, in some cases 8K video, which chews up an enormous amount of storage. So, so where do you see, where do you see Wasabi moving forward? So, um um what now you're 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 a global company right um you have over 200 employees Three, uh, 300 now yeah 300 yeah <laughs> last time i checked it was 200 <laughs> so, yeah. and and so do you have any particular geographical focus any particular or i mean you're in on in every continent uh what's next well, you know, what's next is, uh, you know, every day the our channel partners, which include everything from big guys like TD Cynics and, and T- CDW that have 8,000 salespeople, um, all the way down to little mom and pop resellers in small cities around the world. We're in all the locations that I need to be in for now. We probably covering... 65% of the addressable world storage market with the locations that we're in. There's some places that we're not in. We're not in Latin America yet. We're not in India yet. So there, there's some really good markets that we haven't gotten into yet, and we will in, in the future. But the, the challenge for us still is that most of the storage that's being sold in the world is still on-prem. It's still those EMC boxes, storage servers from HP, from Dell, from you know NetApp, and, and on and on. And the challenge now is, if you look at a um, a channel partner like CDW, we've probably trained maybe 500 of those 7,000 or 8,000 salespeople. So we have a lot of work to do to make sure that anytime any salesperson from any of our channel partners around the world, and we have, I think, 17 or 18,000 channel partners now, and we should have maybe 60 by the time we're done. Um, all of those channel partners need to be have a mindset of anytime there's storage needed, whether a customer is doing a new backup system or whether they're installing a surveillance system in a mall uh, or whether they're servicing a, a, a university that has a, a you know a million different uses for storage, plug in Wasabi. Don't sell them that hardware anymore. Say, look, people don't need to buy hardware to store their data anymore. It's easier, cheaper, and and more secure to store it in the cloud. And once we get a salesperson realizing that it's easy and they can make more money selling the cloud storage than they can selling some box. Uh, then it starts to become routine, and that's what's fueling our growth. So we just have to keep, you know, keep our nose to the grindstone and keep building that channel and training that channel and and making sure that our product fits that channel as best it can from a pricing and packaging perspective, and, and building our brand. So yeah, I mean, and- you, you know, people don't people don't take uh, 
data storage lightly. It's serious business. If I lose somebody's data, you know, that's not good for business, for them or for us. And and so people are, re, are understandably reluctant to entrust a company that they've never heard of with their most precious data. And well, so now we know about you. You're, you're at Fenway at every concert, every game. <laughs> but you consciously decided to create not just a great storage company, but a great brand. There's a lot of branding effort in how you you pick the name of the company, where you see Wasabi all over town. Um, is, th- is that a conscious decision from your artistic side? Yeah, I think a lot of people underestimate the importance of a brand. And, uh, you know, when when somebody shows up at your desk and says, uh, we want to buy, uh, you know, $10,000 worth of cloud storage from Wasabi, and you say, I've never heard of Wasabi. Who the heck is Wasabi? Are you kidding me? Uh, that is an impediment to sales. And so if you build a brand you know it can be it can really grease the skids for for salespeople. now the downside of building a brand is it's expensive we spend millions of dollars putting our name out there in in you know the liverpool football club and (laughs) all of the many things that we do all these crazy videos like the thing you know you were playing when i came into the into the conference and it is expensive. And so what this means is for the investor and for the entrepreneur, um, you're going to give up some equity to build that brand because I have to sell stock to get money to spend on on all of this stuff. So, you know, the, the thinking is that by building that brand, we're actually going to build a much bigger company than we would if we didn't build that brand. And, you know, so that has to produce a return. and. It's very difficult to know whether it's working. You know, that's the problem with with advertising and brand building is it's very difficult to attribute specific sales to a specific campaign. Because they're not if you they see your logo at Fenway, they're not buying your product right there on the spot. It's it's a big decision to move your data to a new company. Yeah, and it takes it takes years to build a brand. So we're yeah. you know we're five years into this now, and uh, you know I I have probably well I wouldn't guess how much money we've spent on brand building since the beginning of the company, but it's been significant for a company with our revenue and size. And, wow. Uh, you know, so it, it's a risk, right? So what what would you tell? a young entrepreneur trying their luck at starting a business would you what would you say if you had like uh, uh 30 seconds with them and they say tell me something to to so i can take it as wisdom well i i think the biggest question for young entrepreneurs is can you explain what your product does and why i should care about it in about 10 seconds because that's about how much time people are going to give you. And, you know, there's always, the, you know, the, this proverbial elevator pitch. Nobody has time to listen to an elevator pitch other than a VC. Um, I always say, if, if you could buy that billboard on the Mass Pike, what would you say on that billboard that would get people to understand what your company does? 
You know, you've got about 15 seconds while that billboard comes into view and then you drive past. And, uh, you know, if that's too hard, that is very hard to do. If that's too hard, at least write me an ad, you know, write, write a, a one page ad that would go in a magazine that would that would tell me what your company does and why I should care about it. And if you can't explain it on a billboard and you can't explain it in a simple ad, it's going to be really difficult for you to sell because nobody cares about a startup. Nobody cares whether you're successful or not. You know, in, in fact, most people kind of kind of root against you because they're jealous and they don't want to see you succeed. Uh, and so, you know, my feeling is that, you, you, you know, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle and it's got to be simple. It's got to be understandable. And, you know, if you can't explain what you're doing in like one sentence, it's going to be an uphill battle. Well, that's why I still get surprised when I get these long emails when someone's trying to explain what they do. And uh, uh, three lines maximum, <laughs> you're, you're allowed if you're sending an email. But um, and then so last question, as you progressed in your career, you've learned a lot, right? And in some cases, you didn't change much because you learned that what you're doing is is the right way. And other in other areas, you've learned quite a bit. How much do you attribute to learning experiences? Are you now so much different and so much better than you were 30 years ago? Or, you know, you're still the same person with these fundamental beliefs and you've learned just practical, tactical changes? Oh, I think you learn a lot. And, you know, every company that I've started, uh, you know, has been a tremendous learning experience. And and it's that's learning that I think gives you the gratification to keep going. Um, you know, I, 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 I've heard people say, you know, don't invest in entrepreneurs if they're over 30 years old, that kind of thing, because 30 year olds have a lot more energy than than people my age, perhaps. But I think the experience that you gain along the way, you know, learning what works, what learning what doesn't work, learning how to put yourself in the shoes of other people, being able to, you know, get to a point in your life where, uh, you know, if something isn't going to doesn't work out exactly right, it's not going to cause a catastrophe for your family or, you know, upset your your life, you know, be able to separate that a little bit from what you're doing, I think makes you, lets you have uh, much better decisions uh, because you've got, a, you know, your intuition is based on a much broader experience base. And so I was, don't sweat reading, the small stuff. Yeah. I, I was just reading a, 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 a little squib about a VC fund that was just being started out in California. And, Part of their mission is only to invest in entrepreneurs who are, you know, over the age of 40, something like that, um, because their analysis shows that the track record for experienced entrepreneurs is better than the track record for young ones. And there are some notable exceptions to that, obviously, you know, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, you know, who uh, I met when he was probably 23 or something like that. Um, but you know, there are also, I, I, 
I advise a number of well, small companies and not as many as you do, but some, and you can see the mistakes that they're making so clearly, you know, uh, when, when you've been around the block a few times. Yeah. And you try to help, but sometimes it's hard to, people need to make their own mistakes. So not on right. your dime, but they need to make some mistakes. And, uh, well, you've, you've been an inspiration to all of us, investors, employees, and, and it's, uh, it's always a great thing to, to see someone in action. I remember when you came to present your new idea, I did hear detractors, people saying, no, what's this about? And um, now, five, six years later, it's a unicorn. Congratulations. And um, love have you, having you in. We're lucky to have you in our ecosystem. And good luck to Wasabi. What a great company. And looking forward to future success. Thanks, Yed. And then thanks to all of the uh, Boston Harbor Angels folks who have been uh, patient and supportive of Wasabi <laughs> over the years. Love it. Thank you very much. Can you see it now? Will you come around? Will you use Wasabi, this hot company we found? Wasabi can hold our data. Amazon can do this potato. Can you see it now? Thank you for listening to Never a Dull Moment. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Have a great day and goodbye until the next episode.